You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. Hey everyone, Chris Lopez here. And in today's episode, we are gonna do another deal analysis with Terrence Doyle and Ben Davis at the Verco. And we're actually going through one of their first bigger deals they did here in Denver. It's actually a 23-unit apartment building that they purchased in the in the heart of the Highlands, like right around like 29th and Zuni. So right there in the heart of the, of the Highlands, uh, they bought that apartment building along with a duplex and also a lot of land. So they're gonna take us through the whole process of uh, how they took it down, and it's definitely an interesting story, then how they started renovating it, which was another interesting story, and now that they're leasing it up. So lots of good information on here today. So Terrence, how are you? Fantastic, I'm actually starting to break out in a sweat thinking about all of the interesting stories we have with this property, but other than that, very well. All right. Thanks for having you, me. You'll make it through here? I think we'll make it through. All yeah. right. What about you, Ben? Do you need uh, like a sweat rag or anything? <laughs> I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I'm hanging in there. All right. Uh, oh, and the quick note as we go on here, um, as most of you listeners know, we are doing the uh, the real estate ride-along show through Bigger Pockets, And I think it was episode number seven, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. We actually walk this property. You guys want to see a video of the property itself? Go check out those uh, that video. We have about a twenty minute walkthrough we did there to see it. Uh, This podcast will go into a much more deep dive into all the interesting stories. Talk about the numbers, uh, a couple pivots you guys did, just all sorts of stuff. Yeah, and they can see the finished product. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. In the video, it's it's done. That was like a week before you guys started leasing it, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I gave you, I gave him the quick intro. Um, walk us through this whole deal. Cause this was what, almost two years ago you bought it? Yeah, 2018, summer of 2018 is when we first walked this building and we closed December of 2018. Wow. And we just started leasing August of 2020. So which is a long time, time in between. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot that happened in the 18 months. Well, that was, that so was you actually plan, dropped right? me off the first day I was going, we were, we were doing a ride along show just ourselves. Yeah. Maybe with my sister or someone else that was in town, 2018, you guys actually dropped me off and I was like, yeah, I'm going to go meet this seller. And that was the first time I met him, I think May of 2018. But, you know, I think the first uh, point for listeners to digest is that this property was listed. It was listed for $4.75 million in 2018. Actually, three different brokerages in Denver had it. And the seller had built the property with his dad in the 60s. So he was very emotionally attached to it. And the long and short of it is, is that he had over levered. So he owned it free and clear. So he, they built it. He had no debt on it, was collecting cash flow. And then over time, he made a couple bad decisions. He bought a property in the mountains. He went over budget on construction. So he took a, a, a loan out on this particular apartment building. It was a hard money loan because the guy he didn't have financials. So he took out a hard money loan. It was at 9% with some points. And then over time, he did not improve the property. So every five, 10 years would go by, the roof would get worse, there'd be leaks. He wouldn't do any pest control. So there'd be roaches, bed bugs. Uh, he wouldn't repair the mold. I mean, it just got bad and you know worse and worse over time. So as you can imagine, the tenant class deteriorated as well. So while so, the area around there is just skyrocketing, that's right. This is not hey, skyrocketing. This, this is the one you know eyesore on the street in the neighborhood, right? This is that one property that have you know has police sirens every week, is having you know shootings, is you know just 
has five or six or seven people living in an apartment. Um, you know, it's, it's that building in probably the best neighborhood to own in the city as from a landlord perspective. So what had happened was he was upside down in the building. Tenants weren't paying because of the tenant class. So he was falling behind on this hard money loan. So there was a balloon payment coming up and a lot of brokers knew that. So everyone was trying to throw him offers and do all this stuff. And he'd been under contract several times in the fours and they weren't able to close. One one of the times the financing fell through because the building was in such rough shape. Another time the buyer backed out due to the condition of the building. And so fast forward, the listing agreement from one of the brokers expires and they weren't able to get the deal done after probably hundred, literally hundreds of showings. So then I had closed a couple of deals with them the year before. With the brokers? With the same broker. So he calls me and says, hey, and I had toured it. And he says, hey, we lost the listing. This guy's really difficult to deal with. Why don't you just try and call him and see if you can get it done? He's really skeptical of brokers, but he needs a quick close. He's very motivated and he needs a ton of construction. I think you're probably the only guy that could get it done in a reasonable budget and to where it makes sense to still buy this at a number that he would accept. So I think the first time I called him was in June of 2018. And I think he might've hung up on me. He said it was under contract. He was, you know, he was already going to, he was going to close next week. I mean, just some delusional story that he had made up. So I call him the next week and I just asked him, Hey, did it close? And he was no. And he might've hung up on me again. I think finally I meet him face to face in July. So fast forward, you know, we're talking and meeting probably every two weeks. We're going back and forth. And then by, by September, he's like, all right, why don't you make me a real offer and let's try and get this done. And I knew that he had a balloon payment coming up at the end of the year. And I think we started at like 3.5 million and it was the apartment building with the duplex next door. The duplex next door was beautiful and had a big lot behind it. There was just a dirt lot that they were using for trash. They were, you know, people staying there were hoarders. So it was oh, misused. Right, yeah. It was misused, but I knew that that could be a parking lot and there was some value there. And then, then there was a lot down the, you know, just to, on the lot next to that. So skip another duplex and then the lot. And he was using that as the, apart, as the uh, parking lot. There's about 12 parking spots there. So we offered 3.5 million. And he basically said he was going to try and do something with someone else. He said that was too low. And I'll never forget it. He, we hadn't talked in probably four weeks. So this was in September. He calls me back in October and says, Hey, would you do 3.8? And I was like, Mr. Franco, the best I can do really is 3.6. And then I think he might've hung up on me again. And then I get an email the end of October. So end of October, 2018. So I'm like five months into this. And he sends me an email like 7 a.m. and says, Terrence, drop the paperwork. I'm ready to accept an offer at 3.7. And I remember at the time I was like, I couldn't believe it. I think I jumped up and down. I might've punched the wall. My business partner was in the office with me at the time. And he thought it was like not real. So I called Mr. Franco. I said, Mr. Franco, you know, he said, Terrence, just draw it up. Let's, let's get this done. I need you to close in 30 days. And uh, so we, it took like another probably two or three weeks to get the paperwork done. And we did end up closing at, he ended up coming back because he had some issue with the broker. He hadn't terminated properly. So he actually had to pay some commissions. So we actually had to inflate the price to 3.75. So we ended up closing 3.75 December of 2018. And he actually, we were able to, that was, this was the first contract where we were get, able to get the seller to agree to let us take over management after we had executed the contract and we were hard on earnest money. So our earnest money was non-refundable. He agreed to let us manage the property basically. And the reason we did that was, so we had 30 day head start. 
to issue 30-day notices, help the tenants transition out of their units into other buildings around the city. And to just, so that way, day one, when we closed, we could start construction. Okay. So most of the time that's worked out really well. In this particular instance, it ended up not working out as well as we had hoped, but that, this was the first time we were able to execute that. And it ended up, you know, on this project, we're probably paying 15,000 a month in holding costs. So it saves you 15,000, save us $15,000 by being able to start managing the property on the day that we closed and have the building in a place that we could start working on it. So that was it. I mean, it was a crazy, you know, experience. It really taught me, you know, we were a million dollars under what he had listed at and no one thought that was possible. I mean, people around, you know, other brokers were like, he'll never accept that. We brought him offers over 4 million. And so it's just a testament of, you know, even if people say a number is impossible, if you're persistent and you have really good communication and the seller trusted you can close on time. I think that was the key is that he trusted that we were going to close. And I think with other people involved with brokers and other sellers, he just didn't get that feeling that they were going to close when they said they were because he had that large balloon payment. Now you closed before that balloon payment, right? We closed before. Yeah, I was 30 okay. days before. So even though he was six months before that balloon payment, he was still being hard-headed to oh, these yeah, offers yeah. above four million. And you can imagine just someone that's gone through those highs and lows. I mean, he owned this thing free and clear. He built it with his dad. I mean, he had his initials like in the cement and the foundation. I mean, he walked me through every square inch of this building and all the things that him and his dad did when they built it. Um, I mean, he was very emotionally tied to it. So it was a really hard thing for him to come around to the mistakes he had made. I mean, he, he would call me sometimes 11 o'clock at night and just be talking about how this was the best, you know, building that him and his dad had ever built. And, all the money he had made from so they it. they built multiple buildings? He had three buildings in the in, in the Highlands that they had built, three of them, mm. and he had to sell all of them. So, you know, he was very emotional to it. And so I think it, it took him a long time to come around to the fact that, hey, I made some mistakes. I'm going to have to sell this and I need to do it in a timely manner and I need to do it with someone I can trust. So even though the number wasn't what he had originally wanted, I think he came around to the fact that he could trust us. And that trust was built over numerous coffee dates, um, meeting at his house, you know, meeting downtown. I mean, I met him basically anywhere he wanted to. And so I think through persistence and communication and then just doing what I said I would do, you know, every time. Um, he At one point, he asked me to do a rent study to show him the rents. Um, yeah, it was just every single time we got together, he wanted something else and that we had to produce and and we were able to earn his trust and, uh, and we were able to close on time and and I still actually talk to him to this day. You know, he's wanted to come back and see the property. And so that was a really big learning lesson for me. At the time, it was the largest building I'd closed in Denver. It was the it was the first time I had gone directly to a seller. The first time that I had dealt with all those headaches. And it was the first time I had brought on a partner, an institutional partner uh, to finance and, and partner, you know, JV on a project with me. So it was a lot of first and I was really excited and it was, I, yeah, I learned a ton from that experience going through that. So I got a couple of questions here actually. So it, it's always interesting to me when you hear these stories, the, these sad stories, someone like this gentleman where, you know, he built it with his father right, and then owner free and clear then, then loses it. Like right. for you as an, an investor, like what lessons did you learn from him? Like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to do this because I don't want to lose or I'm going to teach yeah. my kids so they don't screw it up one day type thing. Yeah, I mean, the, everyone talks about it. You know, it was, he was over levered. You know, he owned it free and clear, and then he took out a loan against it because he was over budget on a project in the mountains that he really knew nothing about. It was like a rehab center, five hours away, and obviously his skill set was him and his dad identified a great piece of land, 
and they did the construction themselves. And in the mountains, he didn't, you know, build it himself. He hired other people, trusted other people. And it was outside of his wheelhouse. It was like a rehab facility or something. Like like a drug and alcohol yeah, rehab? Something like that. Yeah. So there was a lot of state involvement, a lot of regulation. And he ultimately trusted the wrong people. And I think he ended up losing something like five or six million. I don't know the number, but it was a lot of money, north of $5 million. Wow. And so, you know, the learning lesson is number one, don't over lever. You know, he could have easily just cut his losses and not tried to take out the three or $4 million he had in this property. I think he had the loan he had on it was 3.3. So he could have easily just cut his loss and said, I'm not going to try and chase bad money with that project in the mountains. And, but he, you know, really believed in it. And, you know, I think he was conned as well by the wrong people. So, you know, for me, the lesson really was you can't trust, you can't go into business, with the wrong people, you got to stick to the things, you know, you know, he knew multifamily, he knew construction, he got away from that. And then he just over levered. Okay. You know, had he never taken out a loan on that property, you can't really go wrong. You know, you can't lose. So, I mean, nothing dramatic here, just the common things like focused on your strengths, right? Don't over leverage. Just, I mean, the basics of the... The fundamentals, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. just stick to things you know that you have a competitive advantage at and don't ever over-lever. And so, kind of, uh, I want to go into a little more details just about the contract process yeah. here with you. Um, so, I know you you wrote up your contract and you guys did it directly, but then you talked about um, bringing an institutional partner yeah. on here. What was that What was that relationship like and those terms, the financing, all that stuff? Yeah, so this was the first time that we'd ever done that. Prior to this, we had closed every project, just me and my two business partners. And we had done between Des Moines and Denver, you know, 300 units at the time probably together. So we had a really good track record. But we had we had kind of come to the realization that we could scale and do more and kind of scale our business model, which was buying these outdated buildings in Denver and Des Moines by using other people's money, charging them fees, and being able to put just a, a little bit of our money in and leverage other people's money to do the same thing and ultimately get to the same place where we would control and own, you know, hundreds of thousands of doors, but using less of our own capital. So we had, so I think the idea was right, but I, our ex execution on this one, we had just never done it before. So we didn't know what to expect. And I think some of the things that we learned was that we had to be much more clear on the business plan. I think uh, going into it, you kind of assume that if you and I have a discuss, you know, conversation over the phone that like we have an understanding but if what you put in writing isn't what you agreed to over the phone if it's not in the english language on a piece of paper that you both sign it's the, it, the conversation never existed and amongst friends and peers that that works you know or it's worked for me but if you're doing it with people that you haven't don't have a track record with especially that invest for a living or fiduciaries for a living that just is never going to work so that I think was the first thing. I think the second thing was we had never had to be really detailed like to every single dollar on the construction budget. Because mm. once you go into business with someone else and you have a business plan of, hey, we're going to renovate this and we're going to release it for this, you know, every single thing needs to be documented. And, you know, to that point, if we went $100,000 over budget, let's say on an apartment building, let's say there was asbestos or there was more mold or we had to do something else the city required, it was our own capital and we knew that we were going to get out okay. So there was no harm done. And then when you start to take other people, people's capital, you know, going $100,000 over budgets, a much bigger deal. And obviously I understood that, but I didn't understand to, to what degree that yeah. would come into play. So that was a big learning lesson of just really understanding how to put the right budget in place, how to put the right language to protect me as the operator in place if I went over budget. 
And ultimately, you just have to, there's just a different level of scrutiny that comes with when you take on other, you know, uh, when you're a fiduciary and people trust you with their capital, which I, again, like I understood from a, a textbook standpoint, I hadn't lived it, you know, I hadn't gone through it yet. So those are, you know, we, the idea of, I think raising money is attractive and being able to do deals with other people's money. But I think, you know, it's so much the responsibility and the attention to detail and the scrutiny that comes along with that isn't really talked about that much. And so those were things that I, you know, hadn't understood to that point that we ended up, you know, learning some pretty tough lessons on. And now during the like due diligence inspection phase of this yeah. property, any major things pop out to you or any renegotiations during that period or? So we were already at his bottom dollar. Yeah, We got to check the roof and the sewer, but I had been in every unit. Like I said, during the, those five, six months that him, you know, I was meeting with the seller, he had shown me basically every part of that building. So I knew how bad the, I knew that there was roaches. I knew the plumbing was old. I knew the electrical was bad. I knew everything. So did you just assume you were going to be replacing most we of it? We just assumed we were going to replace. We assumed the worst in our budget. And the only thing that I couldn't see was the roof and the sewer. So we had three days to check the sewer. And then we went hard, non-refundable on $100,000. And the sewer, there actually were some issues. And he gave us a $10,000 price reduction. So he did. Yeah. So he was pretty, I mean, when I showed him the How sewer. How major were the sewer issues? They were pretty bad. I mean, we had to replace the whole line. Okay, so yeah. more than ten grand, man. Uh, yeah, it might have been twelve with between the duplex and that, but he, he was pretty reasonable. Okay, considering everything that he was going through, so he was pretty reasonable in that. He didn't give us a dollar for the roof, but uh, he did give us what some was money. Issue the roof just old. And it leaking? was just old. He hadn't touched. Yeah, it was leaking in multiple spots. I mean, there was mold in multiple units. Okay, so yeah, it was it was bad. I mean, it was bad. I think you. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't remember how early you saw it, but it was it was one of the worst buildings I had been in to that point. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw. Pretty early on before you owned it or under right. contract, I remember walking a couple of units and yeah, it was uh, definitely probably the worst building that I could have imagined the Highlands. Especially for that area, yeah. Yeah. All right, so, and then what's the exact game plan here? So, you know, you 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 bought this, but you really wanted the apartment building, right? That was that yeah. was the main part of the portfolio. You wanted to do the, the apartment building. Right. Right next door is a duplex. Behind a duplex is that, yeah, I remember that now. You yeah. said a big dirt lot that was just full of like junk. Yeah, there was like dirt bikes and motors i mean it was i think there was like a hundred and something bicycles and like lawn chair i mean it was the wildest compilation of like yeah. junk you'd ever seen but it was like they were you know the the people that were squatting there they hadn't even paid him rent in like six months were like adamant that we didn't touch it their stuff i mean it was wild. i mean they were so passionate about every single bicycle did back they cleared all out they did end up cleaning it out and whatever was left yeah we had to throw away but they cleared out 90% of it. Wow. So you didn't need like 19 dumpsters for it? Yeah, I think we did have a lot of dumpsters for the building, for the apartment building, but actually not for that back lot. So yeah, they were, it was really interesting how people just, they knew where everything was at and they were, that was like their pride, you know, they knew where they'd gotten the bicycle and what year. I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting, but, um, and then next to that was the parking was lot. Parking yeah, lot. There was a parking lot. And that so, was a standard, like kind of like that, the I'll call it like the yeah it was a forty two fifty lot it was a forty two fifty lot yeah it was just narrow and originally it, it was zoned for uh, it was commercial mixed use uh, up to three stories but due to the setbacks and some of the new zoning they were only able to build a house so we actually flipped the lot so we closed the lot and the duplex with private money a guy that we'd worked with in the past and then we closed on the apartment building simultaneously all the same day with a construction loan from a local bank in Denver. And that was the first time we had done a construction loan that large. 
And so that proved to be pretty difficult. But we closed with private money. We flipped the lot basically that seven days later. So you already had developer. the buyer lined up. We already had the buyer lined up during due diligence. And, and you sell it to a developer? To a developer that ended up building a, ta- uh, yeah, just a, a, I guess a 3,800 square foot townhome. And do you know, was that his original plan? He wanted to build a duplex. And they're just building a, a you know, a, um, like a single family structure there. Okay. And they just finished. I think they're, yeah, they're in their last week or two of finishing touches. And I'm interested to see that'll probably sell in the one five range or something like that. Um, so yeah, we flipped a lot for four twenty five, and then and when you bought it, what'd you, what'd we you, uh, assigned like maybe three and a quarter there. So we did pretty well okay, on the so lot. You, so yeah, you we, yeah, we cleared a couple bucks on the, on the close of that. And then we assigned half a million to the, to the duplex and that's done well we've leased that up and i think we're going to talk about the underwriting on that on a different show but yeah we leased uh we renovated the the top and the bottom of the duplex two bedroom and a one bedroom put washer and dryer new kitchen new bathroom and leased that for a gross 4200 a month uh and then the apartment building we had the construction loan on so that was that was kind of how we financed it and basically we were just able to save money by not having to bring as much cash to close on the lot and the duplex by doing it that way. What were the, so for private money, was that your standard like 0% down? Yeah, 0% down, 8%. Okay. Yeah, and we held the, that and then we refinanced it once the construction was done and it appraised for the exact amount we needed to take out the private money. For the duplex? For the duplex, yeah. yeah. And okay. then we'd already sold off the uh, the lot and returned that capital. What were the terms of construction loan? Do you remember? It was 70% of total cost. 70% of total cost. So what I think we had the total cost at like 3.7 or Ben will be able to give us the deal. But I think the total cost was maybe 3.8 million and they gave us 70% of that. Right. Yeah. But it penciled out to be about 60% of the acquisition and then 10% for renovation. Okay. So that's right. And so what was the, like, what was the renovation plan and budget for the apartment? So the plan was to update everything so we were gonna you know there was five or six rooms that had really bad mold to where the drywall was just falling down and so you had to take down multiple sheets of drywall and get to the studs and then some of those mold had mold on them so we had to replace some of the studs and and so basically because the project was so large we hired a gc that i knew kind of well and had done some roof work for us in the past and he basically had the bandwidth and said hey i can come in and help you i can get you the permit I can oversee this. And then we were just going to use one of our local crews to go in there and actually do the work, but he was going to pull the permit. And we had agreed to not do any work until he pulled the permit. And he had said that he was meeting with the city and you know he had pulled the roof permit and that the city wanted to see one or two other things regarding the interior. And then that would be approved. So he said, you know what, you can go in and start demo. There's not gonna be any issues. And you know, I the one of the mistakes I made was trusting his word instead of seeing an actual document from the city, but we had had a, everything he had said to that point in other projects had worked out. I mean, he had pulled numerous uh, roof permits first in the past and passed those and we had any issues. So this was your first not going to plan. Yeah. So in January of 2019, yeah, we started demo and we had taken a couple units down to the studs that had mold. We were just spraying those with kills, but we weren't changing the layout. We weren't adding any units. You know, we weren't doing anything in my opinion, you know, that I, to that point had thought we needed a, architectural plans or, or a building permit for, um, it was just going to be all like cosmetic changes, right? We were just going to do the windows. We were going to do new bathrooms, new shower fixtures, new, 
flooring, new kitchen cabinets. And so basically, uh, one of the units that you could see on the garden level, we had taken down all the way to the studs because it had really bad mold. It was one of those where the roof had leaked down, had leaked down, and he hadn't mm. fixed it. And a city inspector that was was seeing some of the work done down the street, because you have to remember, in this neighborhood, there's probably three or four large apartment buildings either in the process of getting built or that had just been finished. So the city, you know, city inspectors were through there all the time, but I didn't think, you know, we weren't trying to hide anything. We didn't, I just didn't know. And, and he had told me he'd been communicating with them and showed them what we were doing and there was no issue. And so we got basically one of the city inspectors stopped by, saw that we had taken down the drywall in one of the units and just assumed that we were like doing major construction, like doing framing and adding units or reconfiguring units, which is a big no-no on commercial properties. And so he gave us a, a stop work order. This is like February of 2019. And that GC for four months kept telling me like he was getting it solved. He was getting it in. Meanwhile, no work's going being done. So from February, March, April, May, you're just yeah, we're just waiting. In a holding pattern. We're just in a holding pattern. Paying fifteen grand a month. That's right. Fifteen. Yeah, that's what it was. Our holding costs were fifteen thousand a month, so it was really painful. And and we knew that this you know doing major renovations, obviously you could have to involve the city, but I just never seen anything. Normally, when we had a stop work order prior to this, we could get it resolved in one to two weeks. You know, we could go down there showing pictures, but because of this location, because of this particular city inspector, I mean, it was, it got, I, it ended up being much more intensive than I'd realized. And it turned out that this GC had lied to us and he had never actually spoken with the city. They didn't know what we were doing. Oh, he like never talked to him once? Well, he, he may have talked to him once, but they didn't have it documented. He had never even showed him the tenant finish that we thought we were, the permit we thought so we were So when pulling. did you realize that this whole process? When we brought in another GC and he basically called down to the city and said, Hey, they have no record. They have no, what month record. was this? Yeah, it was probably in May. Okay. May of 2019. And so at this point, obviously our investors really frustrated. We're frustrated. The GC that we had hired is no longer responding. He'd actually like turned off his phone was no, no longer responding. He, I think left the state. I still haven't heard from him. So it wasn't, he just stopped responding to everyone, not just you, <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. Himself. He was, he, he just went AWOL. And so what ended up happening was we had to, ended up having to hire an architect to draw plans for every unit as built, showing what the building was and what we were doing to it. We had to hire an MEP engineer, so a mechanical engineer, to show the, the mechanicals, so the HVAC, the boiler, the electrical, and the plumbing, and show that none of that was changing. They had to do calculations, uh, verifying that the current electrical input from the city was enough to support those units, which turned out that it was not. I mean, we had to go, it was a, it ended up being a five month process just to get the plans drawn with the mechanical and they had to do high, you know, elevation. I mean, they had every single thing as if it was a new build, basically we had to start over and show drawings and mm. plans and everything to the city as if you would have to, if you're going to build basically an apartment building in Denver right this now. around in May. So we, no, we didn't, we didn't end it up starting it till August, July or August, and, you know, our investor, we wanted to meet with multiple architects and engineers and make sure see who had experience in the area and who had done apartment buildings and so on and so forth. So that was a really long, and anytime anyone that's done anything with the city knows on a commercial level, once you get over four units in Denver, it gets, it can get really, really frustrating and very time intensive. I mean, it's, it takes weeks and weeks and months, especially right now where there's a boom, you know, and there's a lot of building going on for them to review plans. Mm. And so, you know, we submitted, they sent comments back, we submitted, take comments back. So we ended up getting the building permit approved in December. It was like the maybe a week before Christmas. So basically, 
a little over a year after you purchased it. That's right. About a year. Okay. A year is when we were able to officially start again. And we had to explain that, hey, listen, we haven't reconfigured any units. This was the way the building was. There was mold. We took down drywall. We were going to put the drywall back up. And and naturally, they don't really care. You know, their thing is, hey, you have to follow the letter of the law. Here's what you have to do to make it right. And, you know, I, you know, the the blessing in all this and in the, the silver line is that I ended up becoming, I don't want to say friends, but like well acquainted and with an open line of communication with the head building inspector, the inspector for that area, and really understanding that the, the building process down at the city on the commercial level. You know, since we had done a bunch of residential stuff and never had an issue, I mean, this was the first time of really seeing who the commercial building inspectors were, how they operate, what they want to see, how to communicate with them, you know, how to get on their good side to where you don't ever get in this situation again. And so, you know, thankfully, so we ended up getting the building permit in December. And, you know, basically what that meant was the city inspector had to walk it with us, right? And tell us exactly what he wanted, what he wanted to see. And then we would do, he would say, okay, I want you to put insulation in these walls and call me when you're done. So then he'd come through and and uh, pass the insulation. And then he'd say, okay, I want to see the drywall, the, she- the, the sheetrock done in these units. And then he'd come by and, and pass that. So basically every phase of the construction he wanted to pass off on. Same thing with plumbing, same thing with electrical. And once you had that done, was he pretty quickly back out there? Or what was the... What yeah, was it was, you know, he would, like yeah, we could call him and he'd come out the same day or next day. Oh, okay. It, was, it wasn't bad then. It was just, just very monotonous. Every little, every single, you know, per floor, right? So he'd want to see four or five units at a time, want to check the screws, want to check the insulation. So it was just one of those things where I'm used to construction going very fast. As you know, you know, a lot of the stuff we do speed and yeah, we, we, we kind of had a, an assembly line laid out, but this is the opposite of that. I mean, it's, you're crawling, 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 stopping, crawling, 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 stopping. You know, there's no, there's nothing about, nothing to do with speed in this process. And the, the building's completely vacant, right? The building's completely vacant. Okay. So we're just racking up 15,000 a month, 15,000 a month, you know? And so that was, uh, you know, so learning that whole process was obviously a great learning experience. Very painful, very, very painful. And, uh, so you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you were, you were, um, textbook ready, so to speak. I think what you yeah. said, like, 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 where did you even learn the basics of there? And the reality is like, how much of that, you know, the, the textbook stuff, how much was actually helpful to you once you started the project? Yeah. I mean, the book knowledge kind of goes out the window when you're in the middle of, of a fight like that. And you're just trying to, it's just really survival. <laughs> we're just trying to survive, but I, we had some good people around us. So we hired a permit expediter that basically helps walk you through the process of getting the permit expedited. So they've been through this thousands of times. They know all the people down at the city. They know who to call and what days to show up and how they want the plans presented. So that helped us a lot. I also hired a GC that had been through this before. So he was able to walk through this. And then we hired basically a superintendent to be on the job site every day to make sure that he would walk through with the city inspector and make sure that the trades were doing exactly what the city inspector would want. So I ended up learning, you know, how to do some of these more intensive real estate projects. And, you know, I mean, what you learn in a book is good, but there's nothing like just getting your hands dirty and learning it in real life. And sometimes real life can be really expensive as this was, but that's kind of the price you pay to learn. And so that was your college tuition. That was several college tuitions right there. Yeah. Painful. And I know at some point, um, so I think at this point we're until what you're into, like what, uh, when did you actually start construction? So we started in December of 2019. Once you're done the stop work order and all that yeah. stuff, when did you, when did you actually start up again after you're done with all the plans and actually start starting so going we to were the right full, people? You know, full force in there again with all the trades, probably January of, 2000, so January of this year. Okay. Yeah. 
So, okay. Um, and I know at some point, um, you, you kind of alluded to earlier that, um, I think you put it politely, you did not meet eye to eye with your original investor. How did yeah. that play out and how did you exit out of that? Yeah, again, really painful. I mean, as you, you know, one of my big things with partnerships is that you really see what people are like when things go bad. You know, when thing, when everyone's making money and things are going good and, you know, it's 2014 and Denver's appreciating 8% year over year and rents are appreciating and everyone's, you know, raking in the cheddar, you know, things are good. It's hard to, it's hard to have disagreements, but when things go bad, you really see what people are like and what, uh, you know, and, and how people are going to handle things. And obviously there was a lot of mistakes that we made, things that we didn't realize and things we didn't understand and couldn't obviously foresee. And, you know, it basically came down to the fact that they, we had just lost trust. You know, we had lost trust uh, by not verifying, by having issues with the city, by accumulating this massive carry, negative carry, and by construction going, you know, way over budget. And so you know, a lot of it was just due to your... Yeah, a lot of it was due to the uh, the issues we had with the yeah. city. I mean, that was it. That was, that was the issue, right? Is that, you know, it just had gone bad. And so we basically, you know, they were you know, they're fiduciary, they're, other people are trusting them with money. So I take that serious. I understand what that's like. And so we just agreed to part ways. I basically wrote them a check. I forget the day, but basically for their principal plus 10% interest. And that was a seven figure. Check. I think we wrote them a check for North of right. Maybe close to $1.1 million. Say that again. So yeah. you said 10%, that was that 10% kind of like that was their profit. Say, Hey, headache, here we go. Yeah. I just, you know, I wanted to put myself in their position and, yeah. and look, it wasn't their fault. And, uh, you know, obviously I could have drawn a different line and said, Hey, this went bad for both of us. And you're not going to, you know, if I'm not making money, you're not making money, but we were still, we still had a bunch of equity in the project and there was still a slim chance that we could get out and make money in which we've been able to come out ahead. And, and we'll, we can talk about that. But, um, yeah, I just felt like it was the right thing to do. Really. I just felt like, Hey, a lot of this is on me. Uh, obviously we were partnerships and we had an agreement, but you know, I'm not gonna, I want to see them go on, you know, have a profit on their return effort. Because at the end of the day, they did believe in me at the beginning of the project a year earlier. So yeah, we wrote them a check on the principal plus their interest plus 10% interest. And I actually felt good about it. You know, I said, you know, I, I wanted them to walk away of having made money and you know, that basically not being able to say really anything bad about the experience they made money, you know, yeah. even though a bunch of bad things happened. They can't, they walked away making double digit return on their money. And, uh, and I just want to be able to sleep at night knowing that I did right by them. And that's well, kind of what we did. Well, I remember, I, I don't, I remember somewhere we were meeting somewhere in Cherry Creek that day, I think for coffee or yeah. just to catch up. And you, I think you, you're about to meet them or just met them. Yeah. And you were like, so relieved. Yeah. I remember that just, you were <laughs> right. like, you were like, weight was off your shoulder. using how yeah. physically it's like, Oh, cool. I just, you can stand up like two inches taller. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that about you that day. Yeah. That was a, you know, it was a really a grueling process. I mean, we probably went back and forth with attorneys for maybe six weeks and, you know, these are like big boy, you know, these are professional investors, right? So this, these guys, you know, there's no messing around. And, and it was, it was really stressful for me. It was really hard. It was the first time I'd been in a situation like that and had anything go wrong to that magnitude. And yeah, it was a really big relief just knowing that, okay, if I mess up now, it's my money, it's on me. And I just felt so much less pressure knowing that I didn't have to, you know, there was no one that I was going to be uh, responsible to other than myself. And, uh, and yeah, so that ended up working out well. We were able to get through construction. Um, we actually were able to pass our final inspections a couple weeks ago and started leasing two weekends ago. And the building turned out 
really amazing. I mean, it was probably one of the best finished products that I've done. You know, we did everything really right for that neighborhood. And I kind of just got to the point where, hey, if I'm going to do this and it's just me, I'm gonna, let's do it right. And so we spent a little bit more money than we thought. We did a mural on the front. We ended up doing some steel, you know, kind of accents on the brick, on the exterior brick. We did an accent wall interior. We did some higher end backsplash. We did some butcher block mixed with granite in the kitchens. And, you know, anyone that listens to this can go and see kind of the finished product on the ride along and see the pictures, but really proud of how the, the guys, you know, the GC that we hired and the, and the superintendent and the team that we put together really executed. The architect ended up doing an incredible job. Um, you know, it just, everything was, it was a team effort and we got through it. And, you know, we had, you know, one of the silver linings is that, you know, rent actually increased from the time that we underwrote the rents to now $200 per month per unit. So that and increased that much over $200. There? Yeah. We were performing, I think at 1195 and we're leasing units right now at 1495 for the one and 1350 for the studio. I believe I think Ben will give us the mm-hmm. exact numbers, but yeah, so much higher than what we had anticipated a couple years uh, previous. And the other good thing is that, you know, debt, you know, from going through this pandemic debt, you know, we were, our construction loan was at five and 5.35. And the debt quote that we have now to refinance is at 375. But that's for your takeout. That's the refinance. Yeah. Yeah. So debt's decreased, rents have increased. And, you know, I think we're going to be, we're going to be in a really good spot. You know, what was your trick? Because I mean, like the, what I always see when I always tell my clients is like, hey, as long as you can hold on the property in the long run, like you're really, really, really high chance you're gonna, you're, you're right. gonna be wealthier than you would. Yeah. But you went through some big speed bumps to put it politely. Like, how did you survive those big speed bumps? It just did you guys pivot to like other financing, or was that just hey, you're I know you're conservative, you have cash on hand. Is that just your cash on hand for the running day funds? Like, how did you survive that that yeah. one year gap plus having to buy out your original investor? Yeah, having to keep in mind is that on the construction loan, the debt payment is coming out as you spend money on the line. So we weren't paying uh, the five point three five percent for the whole thing just on the acquisition because we for that time we were stalled out. Okay, we actually just got to the end of the construction loan in July of this year, so now we're up to the full two point six million at five point two five percent, and we'll refinance in the next. Six or six to eight weeks. And how much are you at two point six five now? How much was the original acquisition for that? It was uh two point two four. Okay. And then you can do the math up to two point six would be the construction line of credit when you're just paying interest only on what you use. And that interest only payment is coming off of the line also. So you're actually not you're not taken away from cash flow, although we didn't have any cash flow, but in another circumstance, it's not money at a year reserve account. It's just coming off the line. Okay. Does that make sense? When you say coming off the line though, I don't so so let's say you have two million left for construction and the end of the month comes and you you owe an eight thousand dollar interest only payment, they're just gonna take that from the two million that you have left. Oh, so you're actually not writing them you're a not, check. It's just no. coming down to your line, of, your, your construction. You pay it at credit. some point, right? Because okay, once yeah, you yeah. fill that up, like we did, exactly. you yeah. end up, we have, so since July, right, we've been paying 15000 a month. Now. So it just ended up filling it sooner. So when you, so even though you're not finished with construction, okay. you have to now come out of pocket. I understand. So you're paying it. You're just not, yeah. you're going to, you end up having to pay the piper. Down but the road. at some point too, you guys have to probably fund more of your, the later construction. That's right. Out of your own pocket, oh, yeah, since, you, sure. since you'd already absolutely okay, right? A project that long, the chance that you're going to want to f- renovate the exact you know n- amount of dollars that you applied for 
on day one when you looked at the property is very unlikely. Yeah. So you're either going to come up, you know, less or above. And then one thing for the listeners is that's that's a tactic that you can use on a non cash flowing asset. But obviously, if you had the the money to make those payments, you're not borrowing it at five and and five point three five percent. So I'm not I'm not encouraging people to pay debt with debt, but um, if you don't have the cash flow, like in this circumstance, that's possible. Okay. So can we run through the financial yeah, model now? Sure. Yeah, Ben's yeah, got it. Because I know we'll probably just run through. So talk about the actually uh, talk about the pivot now because this is because I think you guys originally your plan was to renovate this and sell it, right? Yeah, originally that was the case. You know, as we got through and we just started to look at the area, we started to realize the value of that land there with the duplex. We put a parking lot behind there. Uh, we reconfigured the lot, so now the apartment actually owns the parking lot, and we started to see the rents. We saw the finishes. We basically rebuilt every square inch of this thing with, you know, fully permitted. I just, you know, we started to look at rents and then we looked at what the debt was. I think a big thing was debt going down, the rents increased. And then we sat there looking at it and like, what else would we, what's a better use of our capital than just re, you know, and once you refi, we're not going to be in hardly any of our original equity. And we're going to have a really, you know, and Ben will go through the exact what we're cash flowing. But it ended up, you know, it just was like a no brainer. Like we should just hold this. Now we are going to put it out to market and see if we can get a ridiculous high number from someone that just wants to own in the Highlands because it's sexy, but most likely we're going to end up holding it. And that wasn't the original case, but I think, you know, the, the collision of debt going down, rents going up, just made it a perfect storm for us to, for it to make sense to hold. But that wasn't the, you know, the original plan, like you said. Okay. Yeah. So now you're okay. So we're going to go through the model kind of like, let's go through the model. The current plan is. Yeah, sure. So like we've talked about, we're looking at, um, for the one beds, which are the majority, 18 of the 23 units at 1595. And then the studios, there's studios with and without Murphy beds. And those are going to be worth about 1350. And then Terrence discussed the duplex, which has been quick claim deed, which basically just means that one entity gives another entity a property for $0. So the property that owns the apartment building now owns the parking lot, the duplex, and the 20 and the apartment building. And so all in annually, we're looking at 470,000 gross. And that's for rents, rubs, and parking? Correct. Okay. All in. And so um, we're looking at a conservative appraisal at $6 million for everything. I think it would appraise closer to $6.5 million, but that's going to give us about uh, with a 75% loan to value, somewhere close to four and a half. On the refi for a new new loan, okay, which would cash us out for both our original construction loan, which we've been discussing over the in the last thirty minutes, plus some overhead that our company, the Veracos, accumulated, both in one, uh, you know, adding on extra hard cost, and then we we do an analysis of all of our projects in our overhead and and calculate. Um, roughly, what is the burden of the property to the team? Just your general overhead, correct? Okay, comparatively to our, you know, to ev- everyone the on the team, all their compensation, all the office, the everything. What? How much does this property have an effect on that? And what's that worth? And, oh, and then okay. I add that to my to what we're in it, in it for. 
And so at that point, we're looking at a net cash flow after debt of around 142,000 annual. That's with that's with uh, 83,000 in expenses and a principal and interest sum of 230 leaves you with 142 after debt NOI. And so from that point, we would be we would be whole on the Verico's contribution. And then I'll, I'll take, you know, what is this going to cost to manage going forward? And that's a big, that's a big conversation that Terrence and I have almost every other day on the impact on the team to manage a property vice, you know, by selling it, taking the cash, reinvesting it in another deal and, you know, repeating the process. And when you say manager, you're not talking about like, the property management, you're talking about the overall asset management, right? Correct. Asset management, property management, maintenance, leasing, you know. But if you guys hire a property manager, how many, how much time is that taking away from your guys' you know, actual like because we're managing HQ them, right? Because we're team. meeting, we're meeting with the property manager every two weeks. We're going okay. over what the tenant, and then we handle the maintenance because our guys have a warranty on the work, and we can just do it cheaper. So we still have to manage the maintenance. Okay. When there's fires with tenants, we're still being called. I mean, you know, our property manager handles the leasing and collects the rent, but there's still a lot of work from Ben's standpoint every month checking to make sure that the correct amount of rent was deposited yeah. in the right account. I mean, you know, I mean, even if you have a property manager, you still have to manage them and verify everything's done correctly. And on this size of a project uh, with that many moving parts, there's still a good amount of effort and resources that we would allocate. Right. Okay. That so it's no, it's a basic time value of money analysis for Terrence and I to, you know, weigh the benefits of a hold versus sell first selling. Because obviously this, the Highlands is undeniable, uh, a place to own real estate in Denver. If someone, someone from out of state said, just sell me something where I know, you know, there's growth is imminent. The Highlands would be first on the list. Yep. So with that in mind, you know, everything that I we would look at, um, the burden on the team, the cost, you know, I think we'd still be into it at about a 45% cash on cash um, with that annual net cash flow. And so, like Terrence said, we'll, we're going to probably bring it to market at a pretty ambitious, isn't the right word, but a you know, a number that we would feel good saying, okay, for that, we can, we can do a lot with those dollars in another project or, um, holding it. And then a a tertiary option would be to refinance and then divest some of the equity to some of, um, some interested parties that have expressed their wanting that to happen, um, previously. And then, and then building fee revenue for our management. So basically when I was talking about what it cost, both hard and, you know, our management time, I would we would supplement that with uh or we would cancel that out with fees from the members that we divest the project to. So we would reduce our our position from the one hundred percent owner to 50, 25, even 10. Now, would that be separate from the refinance you guys are totally, doing? Totally refinance. But would you have to refinance again? No. Okay, we just refinance, then you could still... We could take some best. of the extra equity we have if people wanted to be part of that cash on, you know, part of that yield. Because okay. basically what, you know, I think the 
the the good thing about this this project was that we bought it right. You know, had we overpaid and paid four seven, and then you go over budget and you have those holding costs, now you're talking about maybe not even breaking even. But because we were pretty disciplined on our underwriting to purchase it, even with all the mistakes, you know, then we have the lucky break of the debt going down, rents going up. You know, now we're in a position where we're able to cash out all of our money plus a little bit more, which is what gives us that really good cash on cash return. Is the initial equity we put in, which I think is roughly 1.3, 1.4, we're getting all of that back plus all the overages. And then every year we have some expenses to manage it. But after we pay the debt, we're still netting eighty to $90,000 and we don't really have any of our initial equity in. So to me, that's the power of real estate. And if you're yeah. really disciplined of buying the property, right? And so what we could do is get a, a hybrid of both worlds of hold the property, maintain control, but also take some of our chips off the table and let some other people participate in mm. the yield, the ongoing yield. But we're not sure you know, how that's gonna Are play out. Are you still out. debating that? We're still debating. One of the big things is that we had some big wins this year of properties that we had owned previously and sold. And to offset those taxes, we could do a cost segregation, basically just mm. do an accelerated um, depreciation on all the construction that we did that then would help lower our tax burden uh, for this year. And so that's another power of real estate is that, you know, even though the property is going to net us a, you know, a good sum of money because of depreciation will actually show a negative carry forward from this project because of all the construction we did. And so it'll help us offset some of the other wins we had, which is really powerful. And so Ben, you had mentioned about a 45% cash on cash return. Is that with like just all the, you assuming like the overhead for your company as well? Is that like assuming all that? That's exactly right. What would it be? Because I mean, if you got most of your money out, I imagine your cash on cash would be higher for just, if you're just looking at the property itself, not assuming like the your company's overhead, right? Wouldn't that be? Yeah, I mean, it would be a hundred because you would have, you would have had your principal totally returned, and so yeah. even if you made a dollar on annually, you would, you would have made a hundred percent. So you're getting close to where it's like on the math, I mean, almost like an infinite return yeah. type. Well, actually, even more because we're actually are we getting money back more than our equity Correct. on the refi? Yeah, so we're actually getting more money back on the refi at three point seven percent based on the appraised value, because we're taking the duplex, the parking lot, and this as one property. Okay. And then we're able to refinance everything out and return, you know, so it's, I mean, it's hard to calculate that. Yeah. Kind of Yield, I mean, is, yeah. is income compared to what I have invested. So once you have nothing invested, it's that metric is, isn't super relevant, but you know, but it's cool to talk yeah, about it's awesome. yeah. spreadsheet to show <laughs> as the we grow, uh, <laughs> you know, as the, as we grow the team and, bring more people on and, and grow. It's important. It's really important for us to understand, you know, you know what would be called like cost of goods sold in mm -hmm. accounting, which is, you know, even if you don't have anything invested, you are, it does cost money to just keep the ship afloat and run every day. So to say like, oh, we don't have anything and we got our money back, you know, you got to be careful there. Same in, if you just buy single family homes and you're out of it, you know, it takes your time and it takes, uh, takes bandwidth. Yeah. So we try to look at, you know, what is the true cost to hold the property and what, at what rate is the, um, what rate is the net cash flow growing annually? That's a big part of it too, because if it's stagnant growth and our team's growing and our overhead's growing and we're not able to focus on, you know, our goals and where we're going, and it's just sitting stagnant that you know that's a factor as well which this property 
I think is probably of, of our whole portfolio, we can say, by and large, this one will generate more cash annually as time goes on. Okay. So if you look, even I've got it running out to 2025, only at 2% rent growth a year and 2% expense growth, you're looking at um, a value of $8 million at five and a quarter cap. Wow. So... And that's the duplex, the parking lot, and then yeah. The so, so yeah, it's um, yeah. This is one of the reasons why I love value add, you know, real value add, which is also with some more risk, right? We had some risk. Obviously, this one with the city construction budgets go over. You know, there's can be some bad. You can get, you know, you can get punched in the face pretty good doing heavy construction. But this is why I love that is if you're really disciplined on where you buy it, you're creating equity that will then la- can last. A really long time, you know, as we created so much equity by doing the construction ourselves, you know, because to build 23 units in the Highlands right now, you're probably talking, you're probably talking, you're into that thing for six, six million bucks or more, you know, and here well, we are. It's still longer than when you guys right. did. The oh yeah, around. probably, yeah. When you get into entitlements, you're probably two or three years. So here we are, you know, two years and we're into this thing right now for maybe, you know, four and a quarter, four and a, you know, so we've created massive amounts of equity by doing yeah. that hard work ourselves, which is why we love that model of buying outdated, underutilized buildings around Denver and in, in, mar- in a market that we feel really confident about long-term um, and creating that equity ourselves and then being able to, you know, ride the cash flow for as long as we need to with our investors. So what type of uh, financing are you doing the refi? Is it agency debt? Is it a local bank? Uh, well, we inquired about both. And so from the pandemic, we've talked about on the show before, some of the reserve requirements. Um, oh, yeah. Every time I check in with the, the couple agency brokers we have, I get the feeling that we're closer to those being released. Mm-hmm. But for this project, uh, they're still in place. Is that like a 12-month reserve? Yeah, 12-month reserve, principal and interest. And then it, um, you can either apply it to the principal balance or you can just have it back. Um, or you can make payments out of the reserve account, basically allowing you to, you know, it's basically just prepaying a, a year's worth of But you probably don't want to stick away, I mean, well, that's going to be... Several hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, a couple no. hundred thousand yeah. dollars, right? Just no. sit in the account for... So it'll do more invested in our deals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> For this project, I'm I was I'm really focused on loan to value. Um just because we have you know, we had the sixty percent was the construction loan, sixty percent of lo- total cost. And so, you know, we, we want to create a margin of um if, if we are gonna hold, we want to get the most cash out now to either you know, to, to reimburse ourselves, to reinvest in other projects. So the big, the more basis points I can find between the 60% and say 75, 80, 85, the better for us. And so right now we're looking at uh, three and a quarter interest rate, uh, five-year fixed, 30-year AM at um, 75% loan to value. Wow. And so the biggest hurdles on, you know, from where I sit are convincing, convincing lenders to take an appraisal um, with leasing, just having started, you know, only being 50%, you know, I think signed, we have 
a dozen filled. And so to go to the bank and say, look, these are the rents. Uh, this is what you should loan. This is what you should loan off of. You know, they, there's some kickback there, obviously. It's like, well, you know, anyone can sign leases. You can just fill them out if you want. We, we want to see... We want to see, okay, how, much how many you, months do they want to do they want to see seasoned? Well, luckily, because of some of the relationships we have and the familiarity with this project in particular, specifically the bank that did the construction loan, they, you know, they know there's no, you know, there's no funny business going on. Yeah. But the solution that I'm constantly suggesting is just go appraise. Just go, you know, we'll pay for an appraisal. Just go see it yourself. Do a, a rent study. Do a sales analysis, and you'll understand the value. And the more that that train of thought is, we can agree on that, Vice. Okay, once you've had six months of stability, let's talk, the better for us. Okay. Obviously, we don't want to just continue making debt payments for six months while we let these leases yeah. season. Um, so that so loan to value and then an appraisal bait, you know, getting it appraised and uh, the document, you know, the terms drawn up based on the, the appraised value is. So is this key. bank, are they good with kind of what you proposed there where come, come, we'll do yeah. an appraisal now, pay for it and they'll, they're good with that? Yep. Okay. Yep. One of the good things is that local banks. No, we haven't even ordered it. We can't okay. order it until we have, I think, closer to 20 leases signed. Okay. Because we want it to be full and show them a you know, 100% rent roll when when they appraise it. I think one of the fortunate things about this property and why they're willing to do that is just be based on the location. If this if this was in the in a in a lower income area with higher crime, they would definitely want to see six, maybe even 12 months of seasoning on the leases. But because it is because of the location is you know a one for a rental, you know I, that's why they're being a little bit more flexible because a lot of banks want to hold debt. Um, in that zip code, especially with something that's been newly renovated and you've taken a lot of the risk out and all the CapEx has, you know, been performed. So, you know, that's, you know, one of the other things is just being disciplined on your underwriting and also location. You know, whenever you're in a tough season of being a landlord, which I think we're entering for sure, and people are going to be much more price sensitive, is really being focused on location. You know, and because this is, you know, we're fortunate enough that even though two years ago we weren't in a, you know, choppy economic situation, was that, you know, this location is a one and it's going to end up getting us through and not having to wait six months to have it seasoned. Right. 1.2 or 1.3 debt service coverage ratio is where a bank starts to feel really good about lending and the, that you're the, going to easily make the, the debt payment. And this property, you know, with pretty conservative expenses is at a 1.6. So the bank said... It's at 1.6 even at 75% Yeah, 1.57 with a... Um, yeah, and we've got a, we've got property taxes and everything. Wow, pretty generous for everything. So that's you know that's telling the bank like the rents in this area are such that these operators are going to cover their cost and they're going to cover our debt payment fairly reasonable. Even if and then you will do a since they'll look they'll draw down or draw up vacancy and the rents to find that threshold where they hit the 1.2. So they'll, you know, just keep working into the vacancy, 10%, 15, 20, until it comes out at a 1.2. And to get from 1.6 to 1.2 would probably be about um, 
sixty percent occupied. Okay. So they're that that is really reassuring for the bank. And so are you guys is this a non recourse loan? Do you know? No. No. <laughs> That's okay. a factor that we can um like how do you weigh that into your, your spreadsheet model and your risk mitigation? Because obviously, you know, non recourse is always ideal because we're not having to personally guarantee it. Right. How do you is there a way to quantify that risk? Well, you just look at your balance sheet and say, something hey, for you guys yeah. internally. Well, yeah, it's been hard because because of the velocity of our capital and the amount of opportunity that we have, and just the return profile. You know, every ten percent of equity, you know, in this deal is probably worth five, six hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Okay, it's worth I think four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Ten percent of of on the refinance. So naturally, if we invest the capital, even conservatively, at let's say 15%, that ends up being a pretty massive opportunity cost of that money working. And then, so we look at that, how much cash are we talking? If we're talking 100,000, it's not gonna move the needle. But you're talking four or five, six hundred thousand dollars for every 10%, because to be non-recourse, you really have to be 55 or 60, we're okay. 75%. If you're talking 15%, you're probably talking six or $700,000 of equity, uh, which, you know, if you extrapolate that out, invested, you know, then those end up being large numbers. So I, so that's one of the things that I look at, you know, Ben can talk about what he looks at. And then the second thing is just, am I fine with guaranteeing this property? And, you know, the answer on this location, you know, location and with the amount of work that we put into it is yes. You know, there's other parts of Denver that we've gone non-recourse just because it's much lower income and a lot more higher crime. And it's much more speculative in this area. You don't really have to speculate and the opportunity cost for us and our company leaving that much equity in that project ends up being pretty massive. Yeah. So okay. That's that, that's kind of how I look at it. But I'm also young. And I feel like I'm in like my prime. So if things were to go south, I think I can make it back. Obviously, if I was in a different season of life, and I'm not in my mid 30s, I'm in my mid 60s. I'm looking to de-risk everything, and have as low leverage as possible. But I just don't think that that's in the season of life that I'm in. And I think specifically for this project, it's not totally necessary. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, if you're thinking about. If you're in a real estate investor, you're thinking about personal guarantees, transaction volume annually has a, is a big part of it. You know, our company does maybe 25 to 30 transactions, you know, uh, two and a half, three a month. And so, you know, we're constantly liquidating properties and then buying new ones. And so, you know, in a, if, God forbid something were to happen to this property and we needed a the personal guarantee was going to come into effect. There's constantly liquidations. Whereas if you're at a point in life where you're looking at guaranteeing a loan and the only the only asset you have to guarantee it is a 401k that you can't tap into till you're 59 and a half, that's probably not a great that's probably not a great option for you because you're going to get hit with penalties to, te- you know, to take or whatever. Yeah. But if you're buying and selling real estate all the time, that's your, that's your profession. You know, it's not, um, it's not, it's not going to be as challenging for us to cover debt because we're selling, buying, selling, buying, selling every year. You know, whereas if you want to buy a house in Breckenridge and you're going to personally guarantee the loan, you should you should think, okay, well, how will I actually do that? Where will I find this money? Am I gonna have to call, you know, call my buddy and ask him for Uncle Sue. Uncle Sue and ask Uncle him for Sue. a check. <laughs> so, that was a long way to say, I think, you know, as a real estate operators who are, 
you know, trading as the yeah. year goes on, there's a little bit less, um, it's feasible, you know, for us to provide that liquidity. I never thought that's interesting. Your, your perspective there, Ben, just talking about how you guys, you know, you're liquidating, you know, handful of properties a year that you always, you know, you know, should always have cash coming sure. in. So that's, I guess, always like a kind of like a plan B yeah. reserve if you need it. Right. Right. Yeah. We generally tell the bank that we will not be guaranteeing it. Yeah. And then they send us two term sheets and one of them has a guarantee. And then Terrence and I will look at it and obviously it's his decision, uh, personally, but we'll look at, okay, what happens if we do it? Cause that, at that point there's like almost a cost to do it. Yeah. You know, you're going to save some in interest. You're going to save, you know, you're going to get a bigger cash out or whatever the case may be. So it's, um, there's always two, you know, there's always, okay, this is the term sheet, but if you'll do the personal guarantee, here's the really good term sheet. Yeah. And so there's another analysis based on that. One thing I like about multifamily is normally that first refi, you're trying to get a lot of your equity out, but on the second refi, normally three to five years later, depending on the area, that's when you're saying, hey, I'll take the 60% of appraised value to go non-recourse. Okay. That's typically what I've seen. Is, you know, once you've held the property for six, seven, eight years on that second refi, that's when I think it makes more sense to go non-recourse because you've already taken out all of your initial equity. And now to be a little bit more strategic and say, you know, I want a lower LTV to be non-recourse and de-risk. I think that makes a little bit more sense because there's no need to actually take more capital out because you've already taken out your initial equity. And you think this would be like a, a long-term hold where we may refi again? And oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if we end up holding it and not selling, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be a 10-year hold. So play. can I ask, what is the, what is the high number you guys would take to sell it? Or have you determined that yet? Or is that something you're keeping close to the chest? Maybe something north of like, I mean, I don't got, have that he's got, he's got I'm, just, I'm just curious. Yeah. So I got to learn. Um, we'd probably do it north of six, five with a pretty quick close and no hassle yeah. process. Something like that would probably okay. make sense. Uh, I may know one or two people that may, so yeah. may, may yeah. fine, but that's, yeah. I think in that range, uh, it obviously is not going to make a ton of sense on a cap rate. It's probably going to be a pretty aggressive cap rate, but I think if someone's looking to park cash, can take hey, 50% of less debt. And they yeah, you're like right. It. Yeah, for someone from California, New York, it will, it'll make sense. Um, but even that, it'll be pretty aggressive. But I think if yeah. you're a long-term holder, owning that footprint in that location long-term is going to be better than putting the money in a savings account, a CD or buying bonds, you know? Yeah. And I think you can count on, you know, a monthly check for sure, but it's got to be someone that has that kind of horizon. So I'm looking over the agenda we put together. I think we hit all the bullet points here, except for the conclusion stuff. Um, we talked all due diligence, financial model, any like deal specific stuff you guys want to talk about before we wrap this up? No, this you know this was purchased previous to what we did on the last two shows. The, yeah, the uh, the syndications. So it it if we did divest some of the equity toward um, to other people, they would, you know the fees, and it would start to look more like a syndication in that sense. But um, where we sit today, I mean, this is no different than you know, a value add home, single family home or a duplex or, you know, it was purchased, rehabbed and refinanced and will either be sold or not sold. So it's not, um, it, as far as the deal, you know, it's really straightforward. Okay. 
with right. a chance to become more complex. Yeah, I mean, I think the keys are just being disciplined on the on the underwriting when you buy things, you know, because your things most likely are going to go wrong and you have to be disciplined to make sure you have margin to make those mistakes. And obviously we had a lot of margin on this. We made a lot of mistakes and, you know, we had some lucky breaks with, you know, like we talked about debt and then rents going in our favor, but sometimes they don't go in your favor and you need to have enough margin baked in and assume, you know, plan for the worst and, and leave yourself some room for things to not go well, like on construction, like with the city, you know, we'll talk about that soon. So let's say debt stayed about the same about two years ago. And rents did not go up so drastically. Mm-hmm. You know, rents, you know, say they went up a couple bucks, just general right. inflation stuff. Would you guys probably be selling then and that'd be like about a about a break even? Like what would you already even know? Well, we're into it for we're into the property for about what, four million, four one, four two? Under four two. And even uh in the most conservative underwriting to trade at five million, that building. So we'd still be good. And then we added value with the parking lot, so that would add some equity, and then the duplex has done well. So I think we'd, you know, we'd probably be more seriously looking at selling for sure. If we, if interest rates were higher and we're going to get that kind of yield by holding yeah. it, we'd definitely be looking at selling it because there would be people looking to buy in that location. So I think, yeah, absolutely. That would probably be more of a, more of a consideration um, and option A. Okay. Well, great guys. This has been helpful as usual. I learned a few things, so I appreciate it. I think the listeners did as well. And people can go to the website. Uh, it's theverico.com, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And the, the link will be in the show notes to you guys click there, but T H E V A R E C O.com. That's right. Short for value add real estate company. Go there to learn more about it and get in touch with uh, you and Ben if you guys want to talk details on projects you're doing, investing in the future, or also bring you guys a deal as well, right? That's right. Yeah. Anybody that, you know, likes to look at, real estate deals. That's a broker. You know, we're always looking for value at, you know, deals just like this, just underutilized apartment buildings in core Denver. And then, yeah, anyone that's looking to invest in apartment buildings and, you know, wants more passive cash flow, understands the risk associated with, you know, uh, investing in real estate and is comfortable with that. You know, that's obviously what we do. We do it in Denver. Every deal basically is in Denver, Des Moines, one of our backyards, a place that we already operate. And, yeah, we have a bunch of really good projects in the pipeline and yeah, we're looking to kind of expand our investor base and do projects just like just like this one. Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll just, if you guys have interest, I mean, reach out because I mean, Terrence, yeah. I mean, I remember when you and I met three or four years ago, I mean, you you were doing all single single family fix and flips back then for the most part, but yeah. I mean, you built your business off of networking. That's right. And podcasting phone calls is still yeah. networking. Absolutely, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're so. definitely looking to build relationships with people in Denver that that believe in the market and, you know, want to be in larger deals that maybe they can't take down themselves and be a part of a group that's, that's doing them at scale. Cool. All right, guys. Well, Terrence, Ben, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris.